Let's now turn to Romans 7, and we'll read through this chapter. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice." Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In connection with uh, our scripture reading, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 43, or 44 rather, towards the bottom of page 250, Lord's Day 44. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, 
In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, all of God's commandments have to do with uh, the heart. Uh, the Lord Jesus made that uh, clear in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, that... Uh, to lust after a woman in one's heart is to uh, to commit adultery with her in the heart. And his uh, exposition of other commandments show that indeed the law is spiritual and doesn't simply pertain to outward behavior. And we've seen that also in the catechism, in the exposition of the Ten Commandments. We've seen just how deep they reach into our lives. And uh, people that don't see that, see that, or even even feel that uh, personally and rather deeply, they are very much inclined to give themselves kind of a passing grade when it comes uh, to the Ten Commandments. How else could it be that when Jesus uh, cites the commandments of the second table of the law, that this rich young ruler uh, responds to him saying, "All these things I've kept from my youth." I've always been a commandment keeper. I've already done all this. Or how else could we understand Paul's testimony in Philippians uh, 3 before he was converted where he says, touching the law, he was blameless. Now, that was his reputation. And there's a kind of blamelessness of integrity and the life of faith that the Bible speaks of. Uh, but he was rather blameless in his own opinion too, as he would measure his life according to God's law, and indeed give himself a passing grade. But he was desperately, terribly wrong. And people who justify themselves as moral and religious or or perhaps good enough, uh, they don't really hear the law. They don't hear it really for what it says. They've never come to grips with the 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 condemnation that results from realizing that the law basically says, do this, the man who does these things shall live by them. And you take that seriously, and where does that leave us? Well, the Bible is very clear on where it leads us. In Galatians, where it says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the law to do them. Without Christ, the law curses us. And so when people justify themselves and they think they measure up okay before the law of God, well, the true power of the law and the true purpose of the law doesn't really get through to them. Not in any kind of uh, saving way. It really does them good for their souls. Now, Lord's Day 44 is about that power and that purpose of the law for us that power of the law for you, 
who hear the Ten Commandments, uh, read every Sunday morning, uh, for you who hear uh, the law preached strictly, that's basically what we've been hearing over the last number of weeks in this exposition of the Ten Commandments. We have heard the law expounded in its spirituality, in its in its depth, in its reach into our lives. This Lord's Day explains the Tenth Commandment, but then uh, from there it uh, further explains the role of the law in its entirety in the Christian life. And we see here that God's law shows our sin and directs our endeavors. Those are the two main uh, purposes of the law as as expounded here. And in that we see its power and its purpose as defined here in this Lord's Day. And we want to begin by considering uh, the 10th commandment as the commandment that shows the convicting power of the entire law. It's like a summary commandment that really exposes the, 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 the deep meaning of all the other nine. Actually, when you, when you think about the 10th t- the commandment, we, we can see that one out of 10 commandments really says nothing directly about our actions at all. You shall not covet. That's not even a reference to words that we speak. It's about desires. It's about what, uh, happens very quietly and very secretly, unknown to others. What happens on the way to church when some of you men might say, oh, I wish I had a truck like that. Then I'd be really happy. Or people who sit in church and say, I wish I had hair like that. Or I wish I had a husband like that. Or I wish I had a wife like that. I wish I had her. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Desires. Unruly desires. The Tenth Commandment is about our underlying aims and values. The kinds of things that can rule our hearts. We should ask ourselves, what rules our hearts? What are we living for? What are the desires that shape our priorities? Or let's ask, what ruled this rich young ruler's heart? You know, when we read the description of him, there's much that's commendable, isn't there? He was certainly interested in eternal life. He eagerly came to the Lord Jesus and in a very respectful way, he, he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was a serious guy and he was willing to do in order to obtain eternal life. In fact, you might say he had already been doing a lot. He'd been doing a lot of abstaining for a lot of things. Jesus answered and said, do not. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. And he hears those things. He says, yes, that's the rule that I've been seeking to live by. And I've been doing pretty good. And that other one, honor your father and mother. Oh yeah, that I do too. So he's willing to do and he's uh, been demonstrating that in abstaining from a lot of things and doing others. And you get the impression that he may gladly have followed more rules if Jesus had given him some rules to follow. If Jesus had said to him, here, pray this prayer and then get baptized and then witness 
and you'll go to heaven. Now, that might sound shocking, but it's possible that even the, the, the correct things to do to get saved can be presented in a way as if it's a formula. Pray this prayer and then get baptized and then witness. You do these things and that's what will get you to heaven. And such kind of teaching may fail utterly and absolutely actually to touch the heart of the matter. If Jesus had said something like that, it indeed would have left left the heart of the matter untouched. Here was a morally upright man who was serious, who was who was earnest about religious things. And we read in verse 21, Jesus looked at him, loved him. He loved him. Jesus was a perfect man. He was a compassionate and godly man. And he was affected by that earnestness, by that sincerity of this moral man. And he loved him enough to poke his finger right into his heart. One thing you lack. And then when he elaborates that, it really sounds like quite an understatement. One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. In effect, the Lord Jesus was saying to him, Put me before your wealth. Put me before your wealth. And here is how you must do it. And Jesus, again, is not giving a general rule for uh, how to bear witness and testimony to people as to what they must do to be saved. That as a wise and faithful Savior, he was addressing the heart of this man and exposing something that had not yet been exposed. That is the reality of his own sin. And we're told his response, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so then the answer to the question, what ruled this man's heart? Was his possessions, his material interests, his temporal concerns. When it came right down to it, he would not part with them to have Jesus, to have eternal life. It's as if Jesus unleashed the killing power of the law and exposed the fundamental idolatry of the human heart. That's what Ephesians 5 says. That the covetous man, who is an idolater, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it equates covetousness with idolatry. When people's desires are fixed and set upon this world, upon their own wants, rather than upon God's will. They expose the reality that basically they're a God unto themselves. And they worship stuff, or they worship pleasure. That's what they desire supremely, and that's what rules their lives. And the commandment exposes that. God's will must rule our desires. Listen to again, that, that's pretty extreme language, isn't it? In uh, answer 113, that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Now, who can take that seriously and not want to just throw this book away in anger or be convicted of sin and realize that they can't appear before God in themselves? You see, it's that discovery of the spirituality of God's law and its 
reach into his heart that convicted him of sin and led to his conversion. That's what's described there in, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9 when he says, I was alive once without the law. And we think, well, what, when was that? When, when was Paul without the law? Well, he was never without the teaching of God's law. He grew up. He was circumcised. He was raised and nurtured under the word of God. He heard the commandments from the time he was a little boy. And yet he says, I was without the law and he was alive. Pretty self-satisfied, thinking he's doing just fine. Thinking he must be one of God's favorites because of his obedience and morality and religious zeal. Well, that's how he thought of himself. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The commandment, well, what does that mean? Well, it means when the reality of the meaning of God's law actually reached his heart. And what commandment? Uh, brought about that conviction, the Tenth Commandment. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And then sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. It's like when he came to realize that the law laid claim to his inmost heart and his desires, it stirred up that sinful nature. I illustrated it in the catechism class. It says, if you come home from school and your mom says, I just baked a batch of fresh cookies and they're there on, a, on, on the counter, but I want you to leave them alone because I'm keeping them from the, uh, for the young people's meeting tonight. What do you want to do? You want one of those cookies like right now. And it's like that's what the law of God does. It, it, it stirs and pokes at our, at our sinful hearts and, and raises all kinds of sinful desires contrary to God's will. And the result of that is the kind of death that exposes our sin. The rich young ruler was sorrowful because he had great riches. And Paul died as to his hopes and expectations of obtaining righteousness by the works of the law. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. His self-righteousness was shattered. He felt the condemnation of the law and it served God's gracious purpose to cut off his hope of salvation by works. It served as that hard teacher to lead him to Christ for acceptance, to lead him to Christ for righteousness in him, to lead him to that way of thinking that he describes in Philippians chapter uh, 3, where he previously rehearses all his obtainments. Uh, he was... Uh, circumcised of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. He was of the most devout class of Israel. They studied the law. They obeyed it in detail. So they thought, in fact, they added a few details of their own. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, the gift of righteousness, imputed righteousness, in which we may stand accepted before God, accepted in the Beloved, because of who Christ is and what He has done. So the question is, have you heard the law? Have you really heard what it says? Has it made you uncomfortable? Has it made you feel guilty? Has it made you feel condemned? Has it made you feel hopeless in yourself? If it never does, you will never be saved. If the law doesn't serve to expose your need for the Lord Jesus Christ and lead you to trust in Him, the law has failed its purpose for your good, for your salvation, because its purpose is to expose our sin and our need for the Savior so that we might just give up on the idea of being saved by our goodness and cling to Jesus Christ, His blood, His righteousness. That's our only plea. That's the power of the law. That's the purpose of the law. It's described in the early part of this chapter where in verse 4 it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Verse 6, Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We no longer relate to the law of God directly as a condemning authority over us that leaves us spiritually dead and hopeless. No, we relate to the law through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His mediation. We're united to Him. And only in that light do we have a relationship to the law while continuing to experience and feel its condemning power. Also have a relationship in where, in which we, by the Holy Spirit, have come to seek to walk according to it in gratitude by God's grace. And in that connection, we look secondly at the perfection of the law. And it's a perfection that shapes the Christian's purpose. You see, the law remains the rule of Christian living. Not apart from Christ, but it yet remains the rule of Christian living. Living because of its very nature. What is it? It's a summary of what it means to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. And to be free from the curse of the law cannot mean to be free from its claim upon our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's as a believer in Christ that Paul praises the law. There in verse 12, the, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Verse 16, I agree with the law that it is good. In verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now sometimes there, there is a debate and discussion as to whether or not this is a description of Paul as a Christian, a regenerate believer, or as an unregenerate believer, perhaps under conviction. But one thing is certain, that no unregenerate person could say what Paul says here truly and sincerely. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I only need to look across the page and, and read that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. 
So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are unregenerate, those who are simply in Adam, in the flesh, their attitude towards the law is one of hostility and enmity. They don't delight in it. So what Paul says in verse 22 reflects the attitude of a believer. I think, again, a way to um, make clear that the law of God remains a summary of of how Christians are to live. Consider the the fact that all the New Testament ethical demands of Christian living are really so many elaborations of the spiritual meaning of the Ten Commandments. They're never separated from Christ, but in their exposition of the Christian life that we're called to live, we can connect all those teachings to the, the commandments of God in terms of their spiritual meaning. I trust we've seen that in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of these commands and their beauty and in their spiritual depth. Or consider, consider something further. The law gives shape to our view of Christ's perfection. We know of Christ's lovely, perfect person, character through the Gospels. As we listen to what he said, as we observe how he relates to people, as we learn of his absolute reverence and devotion to his God and Father in all that he did, but when it comes to our theological conviction as the per, of the perfection and the beauty of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't believe that we could properly conceive of that or feel it without a sense of the perfect holiness of God's law as it's revealed throughout Scripture. The Lord Jesus was indeed the ultimate lover of the law the ultimate keeper of the law. He kept the law in all its breadth. He kept the Torah. He kept the law of Israel in detail, never violating any of its, of its commands. And his obedience to the moral law indeed defines his righteousness and holiness. And you see, what that means then is that likeness to Christ and living according to God's law are not at odds. They're not really Two different things. Rather, Christ shows us the beauty of law-keeping in real flesh and blood. It's also interesting that uh, there's a kind of seamless connection in uh, this Lord's Day in uh, Answers 114 and 115, a kind of seamless connection between the Christian's goal, as it's described in Answer 14, to live according to all, not only some, all of God's commandments, and then in answer 15, in answer to the question why the law must be preached so strictly, is so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image. Now, is that some, uh, suddenly an introduction of a different subject? There's the goal of keeping God's commandments, and then there is the, the, the progressive work of the Holy Spirit in renewing us more and more after the image of God. No! To walk more and more in God's commandments is to be renewed more and more in the image of God, the likeness of Jesus Christ. So there's a kind of seamless transition and movement in the catechism uh, between these two things. That's the goal that will be reached 
when the Lord Jesus Himself appears in glory and we will see Him as He is and we shall be like Him. The perfection that shapes the Christian's purpose. This is not an idle purpose, again, as the Catechism describes it, that with all seriousness of purpose, we begin to live according to God's commandments. You hear that seriousness of purpose, even even in, in uh, Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes what he really, really wants to do. What I will to do, that I do not practice. The good that I will to do, he says it again, I do not do it. I find a law, there. that is, I find this, this principle at work in my life. That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. His desire, indeed, is to do what is according to God's law. And he's frustrated in this aim by continually falling short. But this will, this desire that he has, is not some occasional, some lazy desire after obedience. And the fact of his remaining sin doesn't, doesn't lead him to kind of file down the sharp points of the law. He certainly preached them strictly. He calls Christians, as do the other apostles, to a, a, a standard of perfection. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And the law defines holiness. And his struggle with remaining sin was real. But he pressed on as we are to press on, never to stop striving against sin, never drop out of this spiritual warfare, never stop praying, because the law of God also holds before us the pathway that that sharpens Christian prayers. It may sound pessimistic, but it's true that failure is a persistent fact of the Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean that Romans 7 is a complete and comprehensive depiction of the Christian frame of mind. No, it it describes the reality of the Christian struggle with remaining sin, but certainly that's not uh, the most prominent, and it's not the only uh, self-knowledge that the Christian has, or it's not the only thing that shapes his outlook and experience. But the fact is that Failure is a persistent fact of the Christian life. Catechism says that in this life, the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience that the law calls for. And in that sense, the law of God remains a teacher of sin in the life of the Christian. Paul describes that in Romans, uh, uh, in, in the 14th and 15th verses. We, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Sin dwells in me. It dwells in me. It's interesting, isn't it, that he distinguishes sin that dwells in him from who he is? He still speaks as a new man in Christ. That's the significance of such languages. It is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. He is the renewed man. The I who speaks here is the regenerate child of God. And yet he recognizes that the flesh, the sinful nature, has not yet been altogether eradicated. And that's the only hope. You can't convert the flesh. 
The old man isn't transformed. He must be put to death. And eventually he will be put to death, finally. But in the meantime, he's still present. And it frustrates us in our desires. We begin the day, we pray for God's grace, and we might even have high ideals for ourselves. And if we're honest, at the end of the day, we have to come before the Lord and say, Father, I have sinned. Forgive me. Be merciful to me. Sin dwells in me. That doesn't mean joylessness. That doesn't mean pessimism in the Christian life. But we are taught by this to live by faith in the gospel, to eagerly seek forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. And pointed preaching of the law leads to pointed prayers. Not just formal repetitions, but, but earnest cries at time. Prayers that are, that are like arrows that are aimed at piercing heaven to receive promised grace and the reality of our own failings and struggles. Pointed prayers that name our own sins, that acknowledge our specific failings before God and others and pray for forgiveness for those sins and pray for the Holy Spirit's power against those sins. Pray the promised grace of the Holy Spirit. Because there is the power to make progress in the Christian life. Well, the power of the law is to expose the reality of sin and to be, and to hold before us indeed the, the perfect pathway of loving God and our neighbor. But the, the law doesn't have any power to enable us to walk that pathway. That's only by the Holy Spirit. It's by the working of God's grace. And that's why we must continue in prayer that God would graciously forgive us for our failings and continue to sanctify us until perfection, until this struggle is over. Because the aim of our prayers also, it penetrates to the life to come. That's when Paul's prayer and desire will be answered, when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this this body of death? Well, God will. When? When this body of death is put off. And actually, when the Lord Jesus comes again and these uh, tremendous things that are described in in 1 Corinthians 15 take place, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed. Set your hope fully, Peter says, on the grace that shall be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that grace involves our complete deliverance from sin, from this body of death, and the redemption of our bodies, their resurrection in power and glory. When we're weary of sin, and sometimes that might translate into being uh, weary of life, though it ought not, we are to press forward. We're to press toward that, that upward, that, that heavenly calling, living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, manfully fighting against sin, the devil, and our own flesh with a prospect of certain deliverance. Progress, strength for today. He will perfect what concerns us. He gives grace and he gives glory. And so we are to be filled with optimism 
And we're to go onward, trusting in Christ. Amen.